Let's go ahead and, uh, and pray before we, before we dive into God's Word. Lord Jesus, we thank You for the chance we have to get together. We know that in this uncertain world, it is a wonderful thing to be reminded of the certainty of Your love, of Your faithfulness, of Your power, Your guidance, Your mercy and grace and love, Your justice, Your, your righteousness. God, help us to better appreciate all of these different facets of who You are. In not just theoretical ways, but in ways that are very real and practical to our lives. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Need some water. All right. The book of Numbers is based off an idea of an ever-loving, never-failing God in relationship with a never-loving, ever-failing people. Today we wrap up our study of the general themes of the book, and as we do so, we're going to look back on the road that we've traveled together. So, it's time to return to the beginning of Numbers to get some perspective. So if you're willing, and you can do it without, you know, falling asleep, close your eyes, take a deep breath, and step back to the beginning of Numbers. The people of Israel are numerous, more than 600,000 able-bodied men besides women and children. These people have been slaves, but God had rescued them with an outstretched arm, delivering them from Egypt with plagues and power, with rivers turning to blood and seas turning to dry land. He brought them to a mountain where he revealed his presence and thunder and lightning and fire and earthquake. And he made a binding covenant with them that they would be his people and he would be their God. He allowed them to build a tent in which he would contain a special concentration of his presence. And he gave them ways to approach him, though he was holy and they were not. This is the God of Israel the one with whom they'd set out toward the promised land at the beginning of this book. Now open your eyes. I have a question that I hope that you'll answer. Had you known nothing about Israel except for that, if we had ended in the book in chapter 10, before the first complaint of the people, at this point, how would you picture God's feelings toward Israel? What words would you use to describe it? How would you picture God's feelings toward Israel at this point? What? Well, at this point, when he brought them to, to Mount Sinai, before the first complaint happened, if all we knew was God's deliverance of Egypt, uh, of Israel from Egypt, his bringing them to Mount Sinai and giving them the temple and His presence in a special way. And they set out that very first step they take towards the promised land. If we stop there, how do we picture God's perspective of Israel?
Yeah? Mm-hmm. Certain expectations for sure. If you leave out the middle of the book with all of the complaints and the failures of Israel and you just stop at chapter 10, you might view things from a hopeful perspective. You might view how loving God is for His people. You might even be excited. After all, God had given them His law. He had said, you are going to be My people and I will be your God and I will have this special relationship with you. And He did all these things so as they set out, you would have perhaps a, a expectation that you would almost be excited for God to take them to the land He promised Abraham 600 years before that He was going to finally do everything He promised. Now, we're going to shift gears. And we're going to remember our trudge, our plod, through the last three weeks. How Israel left Sinai only to fall flat on their faces. How the people showed symptoms of mistrust that culminated in the full rejection of God's will for them when the nation refused to enter that promised land because they refused to believe that God was big enough to give them victory over the giants and the warlike nations that lived there. How struggles within leadership reared its head again and again and again from the attempted overthrow of Moses and Aaron by 250 leaders of Israel to a mob-like rebellion of the people to the failure of Moses and Aaron themselves to lead the people as God wanted them to. Now with that in mind... I have another question for you. If we were to stop here in chapter 20, how do you picture God's feelings toward Israel now? Let's say an angel were to approach God and say, so God, uh, those Israelites, what do you think? What feelings would you picture God having at this point? Frustration? Anything else? Yeah, frustration, disappointment, maybe anger, maybe hopelessness, right? Now, if you view things from an earthly perspective, whether it's through the eyes of the frustrated, complaining nation of Israel, or whether it's through the eyes of a frustrated, worn-out Moses, it's easy to look at numbers and see a bleak picture. Israel had everything going for them after all, right? But they continued to fail. They remained, in other words, such a never-loving, ever-failing people in spite of such a, an ever-loving, never-failing God. Now, if this is your perspective after our walk through Numbers, you would be right to see this perspective, but if you stop there, you would get a woefully incomplete picture of the relationship between God and His people. In order to get a fuller picture, you would need to step back from the situation and see things from an outside perspective. And God gives us this in the interaction between Balak and Balaam. Hard to remember since their names are so similar. Balak was the, the king of Moab, Balak. 
Moab was actually a nation that was related to Israel. Did you know that? Abraham, when he first came to the promised land, he brought his nephew Lot to the promised land. And one of Lot's grandchildren was named Moab, the father of the Moabite nation. Now, Jacob was Abraham's grandson. So these were basically cousin nations. And at God's command, Israel refused to attack them or take any of their land. They would not hurt them. But Balak, king of Moab, didn't care if they didn't hurt him. He wanted to hurt them. So he called on Balaam, a prophet who actually spoke for Yahweh, the true God. And he tried to bribe Balaam to curse Israel. Now in this book, Balaam is not actually pictured as a friend of Israel, but he does say that he can only speak what God wants. And God makes sure of this because there's a special scene of when he is riding on, on Balaam's donkey to visit the king of Moab, that he receives a special warning to speak only God's words or receive death by invisible angel. So that's pretty good incentive to make sure that you are only speaking what God says. Sometimes you need to let the Bible speak for itself. So let me read to you the first oracle of Balaam the seer to King Balak of Moab. Then Balaam said to King Balak, Build me seven altars here and prepare seven young bulls and ram, seven rams for me to sacrifice. Balak followed his instructions and the two of them sacrificed a young bull and a ram on each altar. Then Balaam said to Balak, Stand here by your burnt offerings, and I'll go and see if Yahweh will respond to me. Then I'll tell you whatever he reveals to me. So Balaam went alone to the top of a bare hill, and God met him there. Balaam said to him, I've prepared seven altars and have sacrificed a young bull and a ram on each altar. Yahweh gave Balaam a message for King Balak. Then he said, Go back and give him my message. So Balaam returned and found the king standing beside his burnt offerings with all the officials of Moab. This was the message Balaam delivered. Balak summoned me to come from Aram. The king of Moab brought me from the eastern hills. Come, he said, curse Jacob for me. Come and announce Israel's doom. But how can I curse those whom God hasn't cursed? How can I condemn those Yahweh hasn't condemned? I see them from the clifftops. I watch them from the hills. I see a people who live by themselves, set apart from other nations. Who can count Jacob's descendants as numerous as dust? Who can count even a fourth of Israel's people? Let me die like the righteous. Let my life end like theirs. Then King Balak demanded of Balaam, What have you done to me? I brought you to curse my enemies. Instead, you've blessed them. But Balaam replied, I speak only the message Yahweh puts in my mouth. When we started this five-part series on numbers, I gave you a spoiler. And you can view the book of Numbers from two sides of the same coin. Could be even better illustration if I had a coin in my hand. But you get the picture. You've seen a coin before, even though those are rarer today. You can see numbers from two sides of the same coin, but a full picture understands both to be true. On one side of the coin is written, Israel, the never-loving, ever-failing people. And on the other side is written, Yahweh, the ever-loving, never-failing God. 
It's easy to emphasize when we read Numbers, the Israelite side, to say, even though God is ever loving and ever failing, Israel is never loving and ever failing, right? It's easy to emphasize that. But here in this scene, we are pulling back and we get to see things from God's actual perspective. Now, if God was losing his temper with Israel after all of their many, many failures, if he didn't care for Israel, he would have happily allowed Balaam to curse them. But instead, Yahweh protected his people. And through this interaction, we see that God says, even though Israel is never loving and ever failing, I am ever loving and never failing. There's a word for this. It's a magical word. Perhaps one of the very best words you can never know or say. I know I said that several weeks ago about the big word propitiation, but this word is even better. Let me tell you this word. Grace. Grace. Grace is not unique to the New Testament. The whole Bible overflows with it. Three times King Balak asked Balaam to curse disobedient Israel, and three times God tells Balaam to respond with greater and greater blessing for his people. So, I'm going to take us out of numbers and take this idea that we are holding and toss it to you. You don't have to answer this time, but I want you to think through this for yourself. How do you think God views you when you obey? How do you think He views you when you don't? We sometimes picture God as kind of waffling between two ways of viewing us, right? With either pleasure or with frustration. When we're doing well, we picture God delighting in our faithfulness and obedience, right? And when we fail or reject Him or turn away, we kind of picture God with a stormy look on His face, don't we? Barely holding back His temper because we failed again, don't we? Here's the thing. I got an idea for you. Let's see if we can hold on to it. Here it is. Our God is big. Okay? Can we remember that? I see a couple nodding heads here. Here we go. Our God is big. Like, really big. He is big enough to create a whole vast universe if he wants to in six days complete with billions of years of history built into it if he wants to he is able to do that very thing fully able and guess what he is big enough to then destroy the entire universe and create a new heavens and a new earth as he promises that one day he will do our God is big What does that mean? That means he doesn't actually need anything from me, does he? 
God doesn't get any richer when I tithe. He doesn't get any holier when I obey. He doesn't even get more glory when I praise Him. He has an infinite amount of everything He could ever need without me and without you. Which also means I could never make Him less by withholding anything, my tithes, my obedience, or my praise. Our God is big. This is foundational to the idea of grace. So many religions present such a small God. But our God is big. You see, when I tithe, when I give my money towards what God is doing, I don't do it because God needs the money from me but because He generously allows me the honor of taking part in His work. When I obey, it's not because God needs me to obey, but because He generously reveals what's best for me and He allows me to follow His lead. Isn't He so good to tell me His will so I can do what's best? When I praise Him, it's not because He needs it, but because I'm simply recognizing the glory that He already has. Our God is big. Everything that I can do for Him, actually, I'm not really doing for His sake, but in response to what He has already done, including what He has already done for me. God knows everything I would ever think, do, or say, and yet He still paid the price for my sin and defeated the power of death on my behalf. Now, He won't approve of my actions when I turn away, but He will never, never, never run out of His love for me and for you. Why? Because our God is... Thank you. Let's see if this way, this time the whole church can know it. Our God is? Let's say it one more time. This time act like it actually matters, like it's something that's worth being excited about. God will never run out of His love for me because our God is? Yes, because our God is so big. Now allow me a, a slight rabbit trail that I promise will come back around and give us a fuller picture of this bigness of God, this grace. When I was in college, I visited a friend's house and some of us got in a conversation with my friend's dad. He posed a question to us. He said, is God complex or simple? And our, we talked about it among ourselves and we came up with the answer that God is complex, right? There is so much to who God is after all. He's got his creativity, he's got his love, his faithfulness, his authority, his wisdom. He's beyond our ability to understand him, right? Our God is complex. And when he told him that, he said in one sense, yes, that's true. But in another sense, God is incredibly simple. Because everything that he does, he does with all of who he is. Think about it this way. I have a lot of different parts of me, right? My fingers, my hands, arms, head, teeth, eyes, body, legs, feet, all these different parts of me. But when I walk over to this side of the room, 
Have I left behind anything, any part of who I am? When I come back here, do I, I need to go, come back and retrieve a part of myself? No. Every part of me that has gone over this way, that walks around the room, every part of me goes along with the whole of me. In the same way, whatever God does, all of God does. God never acts in wisdom, but not in faithfulness. He never acts in power, but not in love. The Son never moves in a direction that the Father and Spirit would rather not. Everything God does, He does with every part of Him. What does this have to do with the concept of grace? Everything. Everything. You see, God shows us grace. He is not leaving His holiness, righteousness, sovereignty, or hatred of sin behind. God's grace fulfills all of those things as well as His love, faithfulness, mercy, and compassion. And it must be this way. Most Christians who struggle with the idea of hell, and most non-Christians who struggle with the idea of hell, struggle because they cannot accept the idea of a God who leaves behind love and mercy to act only with righteousness and judgment, right? And yet at the same time, would it not be equally distasteful for us to accept a God who acts with love and mercy and without righteousness and judgment? After all, just ask the child who suffers under the hand of the abuser. Ask the man who suffers under the yoke of oppression. Ask the woman who suffers under the abuse of sex slavery or sexual exploitation of some kind. Does God not see the wrongs that are done to them? Does God not hear their cries that this wrong be made right? Oh, He hears it. And He will do it. He will make all things right one day. Our God is big and He will make all things right. And when He does, He will do it with every fiber of His being. He will do it with His righteousness, with His love, with His sovereignty, His compassion, with His justice, His faithfulness, His holiness, His mercy, with the Father, Son, and Spirit acting perfectly together. All of this is wrapped up in the message of grace. There's one more story that exemplifies this. Perhaps the book's most well-known story. After more wandering in the wilderness, the people complain again. And this time, <laughs> they complain about everything. They complain about not, of all things, being in Egypt. They complain about God's judgment in the wilderness. They complain about the things that they don't have. They even complain about the miraculously provided food that they do have. Enter God's judgment. This time in the form of snakes. Snakes that permeate the camp. They're not everywhere, but they could be anywhere. You could get bitten as you walk by a random stone. 
You could get bitten as you're sitting outside of your tent. It could sneak up on you in the middle of the night and kill you in your sleep. Poisonous snakes throughout the camp. The people responded as they should by confessing their sin, and they begged Moses and Aaron to ask God to take away the snakes. But rather than taking the snakes away, you know what God does? He tells Moses, place a bronze snake on top of a wooden post, a symbol of the very judgment and curse that God has just brought on the people. And as this bronze snake is raised up in front of the people, Moses tells them God's promise that anyone bitten by the snake can look at the snake and live. Let me rephrase that promise in a slightly different way now. The promise is that anyone under God's judgment can look at this symbol of God's judgment raised up on a piece of wood and be freed from God's judgment. Hmm. That sounds familiar. God's people learned an incredibly valuable lesson here. That God saves people from judgment by saving them through judgment. And this scene, for all of its power, is just a picture of the greater salvation that God would one day provide. 1,500 years later, a man would sit in deep conversation with a teacher of Israel, Nicodemus. And he would say these words. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For this is the way that God loved the world. He gave His one and only Son so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. Did you know that that was the context for John 3.16? God walks that line between judgment and life, by, between justice and mercy, by rescuing us through judgment by placing the entire curse on His Son. He raised His Son Jesus up on a pole. And all who trust in Him will be rescued from the curse and given eternal life. Because Jesus' body was broken by a sinful world, we can be freed from sin's power. Because His blood was shed to the point of death, we can be freed from death's grasp. We receive this freedom, not by doing anything for God, but by responding to what God has done for us. And He's offered it in the simplest way it could possibly be offered, by believing, by being convinced that this relationship, this life, is offered as freely as He says. That it's yours, given to you by Jesus. It's this promise, this sacrifice, this grace, that we remember when we take communion together. And thanks to me, earlier today kicking the table you might even get a better illustration of the shed blood of Jesus won't you 
Communion here is open to every person who has believed in that promise of Jesus, that message of life, including if you have just understood and trusted it for the first time today. When we take bread, we remember and proclaim to one another that Christ's body was broken for us. When we take the cup, we remember and proclaim to one another that His blood was shed, poured out for us. It was at the cross that all the evil and sin and brokenness of the entire world faced off against the power, the love, the justice, and the faithfulness of God. And God rose victorious. As we pass the bread and the cup, uh, we're going to be playing a song. And I ask that you would please take them and hold on to them. Uh, Listen to the words of the song. And listen and thank God for His faithfulness to you. When the song is finished, we'll pray together and we'll take together.